This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, casting a spotlight on First Lady Michelle Obama's relationship with her husband and his staff. We explore the polyoptics impact of The Obamas, the red-hot new book from author Jody Cantor of the New York Times. Does the narrative give the First Lady her due? Then Iowa and New Hampshire in the rearview mirror. Next stop, South Carolina. We speak with Republican strategist, former campaign operative, and native son of the Palmetto State, Tucker Eskew, about the bare-knuckle politics of the first in the South primary. I'm joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here. It's great to be with you, Adam. Here we are coming out of New Hampshire, candidates all headed en masse to South Carolina, maybe a final uh, attempt to tear down Mitt Romney before he uh, gets probably on a on a roll and establishes momentum toward enough delegates to secure the nomination. And um, you know, over the last many shows, I think we've been focusing rightly on the Republican field, and yet there is going to be a Democratic nominee as well. His name is Barack Obama. Yeah, uh, the enemy always has a vote, uh, and I'll tell you, <laughs> the uh, the president is the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And uh, if you can't get a training chain, and if you can't get a training regimen in that uh, will prepare you for that fight, you have no business uh, being in the ring at all. And this is really what these primaries uh, represent. So as we look forward, of course, Josh, to South Carolina, I'm really excited that uh, a little later in the show we're going to have Tucker Askew joining us. But the big news this week, I think, if you've really followed presidential politics, is this brand new book by New York Times uh, reporter Jody Cantor. That's right. It's called The Obamas. I... uh met Jody back in 2007, I think, when I was on assignment for Men's Vogue, traveling through Iowa. She and I shared a van for a couple days. So I I had a sense of how closely she was following uh, the Obamas. And certainly after that, you know, you've seen a lot of major front page pieces in the Times under Jody's byline, uh, their relationship with Reverend Jeremiah Wright, the status of their marriage, uh, the roots of Michelle uh, Robinson before she became Michelle Obama's family, uh, that it's traced back to slavery in South Carolina. So she does know this family intimately, and the picture that she paints is really one of three characters. It's Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, and it is this building that they live in, the White House, the executive mansion, and this 18 acres on which it sits. For a lot of people who are polyoptics fans, we've all come to know together that polyoptics is both a practice uh, of stewardship of uh, imagery and political theater. And it's also, uh, thanks to you, Josh, a, uh, a prism through which we can take an academic look at the long and even the, the medium term uh, view of history of our political leaders, especially the president. And so this book, I think, occupies a pretty interesting space uh, in polyoptics. Uh, analysis, and I'm really excited to uh, to hear what Jody's got to say. 
And, you know, one more thing to Adam. I, 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 earlier in the fall, I made my way through the entirety of Ron Suskin's book, uh, Confidence Men. And it, and it painted a very detailed picture of policy decisions and debates and struggles that were going on within the West Wing and at the Department of Treasury. But the very interesting part for polyopticians and those who look at the at the stagecraft of politics, you can really uniquely find in Jody Cantor's book because she lets us behind the scenes at so many of the logistical, me- mechanic, social uh, and organizational parts of the White House. The the role, for instance, of the social secretary of of uh, Desiree Rogers, the first social secretary of Mrs. Obama and uh, and of the White House, who sort of tried to create a an image of elegance, of beauty, of perfection. And in some ways, it really ran counter to the the way the economy was going, the way the world was going, and certainly the way Rahm Emanuel and Robert Gibbs wanted to portray life in the White House and for the first family. Yeah, the more you know about how uh, the White House works and what it is to occupy the residents as the first family and even support them as staff, the more you begin to appreciate uh, this this rather insightful and, and very uh, nuanced and delicate look into the lives of, of this family over the last number of years. Jody Cantor, welcome to Polyoptics. You know, uh, Adam and I have been... Uh, watching the coverage of the book, The Obamas, as it has appeared over the last few days. Uh, you know, you never know exactly how initial tidbits of the book are going to leak and how they're going to be magnified by uh, the Drudge Report and uh, and the, especially the TV outlets that are just looking for other ways to use B-roll to sort of re- remind us of their relevance. But, you know, as as I read through the book, I was brought on this wonderful journey that really begins uh, in Chicago with the Robinson family. And, you know, I think some of the color that you bring from the book has probably been in some of your previous articles, but to have it woven together in a narrative to talk about about uh, Michelle Obama's father and the apartment they had inside a house, about how the he, despite his disability, he made these long drives to Princeton to see his son Craig play basketball, and and also how Mr. Robinson had to finance uh, both Michelle and Craig's education was just so moving. Can you sort of paint a picture of the young Robinson family? Absolutely. Um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here, and I think that that is such a great starting place for this discussion because the book is really about a transformation, right? And it's about what happens when two pretty regular, talented, well-educated, but pretty regular people become president and first lady of the United States. And through your jobs, you've seen that transformation happen. You've seen that becoming president is not really something that happens on inauguration day. It happens much more slowly. And there's no better starting point for that than with the Robinsons, because how much more regular can you get, right, with a family? Um, Michelle Obama is, you know, as she has often said, from this really modest background on the South Side. Um, Her mom, Marian Robinson, is one of the people I enjoy reporting on the most. You can't actually, it's very hard to learn that much about Mrs. Robinson because she's very, very private. But what I do say in the book is that, you know, this is not somebody who's had an easy life. Uh, She 
dropped out of college. Um, her husband was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at a pretty young age. They faced all the limitations that an African-American family, you know, mid-20th century living on the south side of Chicago is going to face. Uh, you know, the descriptions of, of that the First Lady gives about having a very sort of happy and, happy and stable family life um, have always rung very true in my reporting. Um, and you know, one of one of the oh, this is a, a really this is something that I think speaks volumes about the Robinsons when Marion Robinson finally decides to move to the White House because it's a hard decision for her. She doesn't really want to live, uh, you know, in the middle of the circus and she doesn't want to leave her life back home when she does get to Washington she begins to travel a little bit with the Obamas and she goes on her first state trip. She'd in, never been out in, of the United States. That's before, my right? punchline. You took me, oh, you know, sure. that, no, I it's okay, but yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so thrilled you read it. So, you know, the, the thing that I imagine in that moment is, you know, this elderly African-American woman who worked hard her whole life, who coped with a lot of challenges and, uh, she finally gets to leave the United States and travel. And the first time she's doing it, she's coming down those steps of Air Force One. You know, I mean, what what a transition. And, you know, we'll talk mostly about Barack and Michelle Obama today for obvious reasons. But, you know, maybe in a way the most dramatic story in the White House uh, belongs to Marianne Robinson. There's something else she says that um, that, that, that cracks me up. You know, she does not want to be famous and she has a very good reason because if she becomes famous, she loses her freedom and she is Malia and Sasha's ticket to something resembling a normal life in Washington. They can't go places, um, and do stuff with their parents the way other kids do. Their parents can't like, you know, take them to the mall for two hours on a Saturday afternoon. So they do that stuff with Mrs. Robinson and very early in the administration, uh, Oprah, Oprah really wants Marion Robinson to come on the show. I mean, it's Oprah. She knows a story when she sees one, right? And yeah. so a communications aide goes to Mrs. Robinson and says, Oprah wants you on. Do you want to do it? And she said, oh, no, 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 no. If I go on Oprah, then I'm not going to be able to do what I like to do, which is just to slip out of the White House gates and go to the Filene's basement on Connecticut Avenue. And she says, nobody there pays me any mind. They think I'm just another person who works in the mansion. Meaning the executive mansion, meaning everybody thinks I'm just a housekeeper at the White House. That's amazing. I mean, talk to us about the executive mansion itself and how the current residents who call it home, the Obamas, differ from, let's say, the people who Adam Belmar worked with the Bushes and who I worked with the Clintons. You know, there were many occasions when uh, the Clintons would invite us up to the third floor residence either for a political event or an after speech uh, uh, cocktail or something. Uh, and in the Obama White House, that third floor is pretty much off limits, isn't it? It is. And, uh, you know, I always think that in this... Have you been up there? Have you spent no, time in the residence? I can't think of a journalist who has. I mean, not in this... Well, I can ad- think of a few. In this administration? No, not in this administration. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So the, um, the, the thing I always think is that the house is almost a character in mm. this book, right? Because the Obamas are moving to Washington and it's like, what is this place, this house that they're even moving to? Is it an office? Is it a museum? Is it a secure military compound? 
is it a terrorist target? Yes, it's it's absolutely all these things. And these functions are bumping up against each other constantly. You know, I'm really fascinated by the diplomatic room, a place you guys know, because uh, as you know, the first family doesn't really have a truly private entrance and exit to the building. They come and go through the dip room, and then they move behind those, you know, those brown screens mm-hmm. on the ground floor. They almost look like the kinds of screens you would see in a church basement or something. They're very nondescript. And the president and first lady move behind them so that tourists or other staff can't see them. And it just strikes me as a metaphor for the way these people live generally, because they live like sort of half an inch from public view. And I was in the diplomatic room uh, a couple of months ago doing some reporting. I was standing with two White House staffers, and actually, Sasha Obama and Marion Robinson appeared. It was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and Sasha had a backpack, so I guess she was coming home from school, and her grandmother was with her. And the White House staff I was with acted totally natural. They just smiled and nodded. And I had a very different reaction. I kind of froze uh, because... To me, it was so, I I think I felt almost bad that Sasha had to run into a journalist in her own home. It's just that, you know, the, the, the confusion between what is public and what is private in the White House really came home to me. So the Obamas do use the space a little bit differently than their predecessors. Uh, you know, I've heard lots of stories, not only about um, the Clintons inviting people up for events, but just even casually. I mean, when people were invited to go running with Clinton, for example, he would say, you know, meet me in the residence. And then sometimes if people came up to the residence, he would say, oh, you know what? I got to help Chelsea with her math homework for a half hour. Do you mind just hanging out on the Truman balcony and, you know, I'll be done? And uh, there's this great scene in um, Taylor Branch's book about Clinton Uh, Branch is doing one of his late night recording sessions with Clinton, but Clinton is having, you know, there's some crisis and Clinton is up really late and uh, he tells Branch to just sleep over and they'll continue in the morning. So Branch gets up in the morning and and he walks into, you know, the main corridor and he sees the president uh, eating breakfast. And Clinton, you know, looks terrible. He's been up like practically all night. And he's sitting there and he's not, the president is not fully dressed. And Branch describes the president's bare, you know, thin, hairy legs resting on the polished floor. And I, I was so struck by that image because that is so different than the Obamas. You know, the Obamas never let anybody see them like that. They're they're not really casual. They're quite protective. They're quite correct. And they really use the private residence as a truly private space. Uh, they've had a couple of events up there. And, and obviously, they do entertain foreign leaders up there, which everybody does. But um, Someone who was at the goodbye party for Rahm Emanuel said to me, you know, yeah, there there was a little party in the residence and it was really nice. This was somebody who had also worked in the Clinton administration. And what this person said was, you know, the thing is, it's always kind of structured with the Obamas. They, you're invited for a specific time. You show up on time. Uh, I think she said the invitation even had an end time for the party. You leave on time. You don't sit, you don't sink into the couch and have a few drinks and put up your feet and trade confidences and stories all night. It's just, they're just much more private than that. Jody, one of the things that that I really enjoy about the book and and one of the things that uh, made me feel like it was a great uh, uh, 
thing for us to be talking about on polyoptics with you is this idea that this polyoptic narrative of the Obamas, this first term, there may well be a second term, but this migration of a pretty humble, somewhat normal family, let alone an African-American family, moving in to the White House could 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 be a fictional uh, account uh, that, that might have been written prospectively, and yet here it is, and it's true. Uh, this has all happened, and you've given us uh, this behind-the-scenes uh, understanding in a, in a lot of ways, uh, and, and, it, and it takes us to a point where we begin to try and stand in their shoes and understand for Michelle Obama uh, the challenges, both with the kids and some of the preconceived notions that she had about how life could be and, you know, do we need to be at the White House full time? And some of these things are just naive, of course, uh, but she's learned her way. Um, Help us look at the evolution of this first lady, uh, as you describe it in the book. I mean, she had to really come to terms with how she could assert herself as a mom before ever becoming a first lady. And now she's, you know, commanding this East Wing staff and she's got events and she's got to play a role in her husband's reelection. Talk to us about the detail of the evolution of Michelle Obama as you've come to appreciate it. I think it, I think she's changed enormously, and and okay. one of the real satisfactions of the reporting was being able to mark those changes mm. through a series of stories and anecdotes and episodes. And you know, the book starts really with um, with her telling a friend in Chicago that they still haven't decided whether or not the family is going to move to the White House right after inauguration. Uh, obviously, they're going to move eventually, but but one of her thoughts is that maybe the kids should stay in Chicago through the end of the school year, you know, and she'll be a kind of commuter first lady. And, you know, it never happened, right? It, obviously, she decided to go. But I think that moment and the fact that she considered it t- is so important in understanding her character because it tells us two things about her at that point. On the one hand, as you say, there's a certain naivete to it. She doesn't really understand the way the presidency works yet. I mean, just even imagine the logistics. But also politically, the country is never going to accept the notion of a commuter first lady, right? It would have been a political disaster. And the um, the, the the country was enthralled by this new first family, right? I mean, remember the debates about what kind of dog they were going to get in the White House? And yet... Exactly. But, you know, but at the same time, Michelle Obama often has a kind of outsider's wisdom about politics. And even though she's not as well versed in it as a lot of the political advisors, there are a lot of episodes where she, you know, it's sort of like she feels the earthquake tremors before her husband does. She's the worrier in the family, and she's often the first to see problems. And so I think that her concern about this transition and moving to her kids to the White House is also very legitimate because the uh, question of how this family is supposed to exist there is a really complicated one. And by the way, part of the drama here is that 
um, because Obama was always commuting to either Springfield and then Washington. He was the, essentially an absentee father before before the the, the, the presidency, wasn't he? I, it d- depends on which period you're talking about. There are times when they had like kind of a more stable routine when he was home Thursday through Monday. And then, but during the presidential campaign, I think you're absolutely right to describe him that way. So they get to the White House and on top of everything else, not only is he... Uh, not only does he not have that much executive experience, managerial experience, uh, national security experience, uh, uh, um, but he's also living in uh, he's also living in the same house as his family full time for the first time. That's and, a, and the house they're doing that in is the White House yeah. of all places. <laughs> and, and so it's particularly apt, Jody, as you think about this coming weekend. You know, some of the major. NFL playoff games that are about to take place uh, today on Saturday and tomorrow on Sunday, uh, that you might want to think, well, i got this great house. I have a family theater that has all these seats. I have a huge uh, projection screen. Why don't I invite some people over and watch? And if you're Barack Obama, the new president of the United States, and you're watching the Super Bowl between your hometown Pittsburgh Steelers and the Arizona Cardinals, and not your hometown, but because you're living in Hawaii, you you have to adopt a team. Mm-hmm. And it's the Steelers. I Tell love about... I love how closely you've read this book. By the way, <laughs> I just have to give you major props because well, you you like this is just the most satisfying experience uh, that an author can have. I, I was on a long flight from London last night, and I I had it on iPad, and I zipped. It was great. Thank now, you. Now, tell us about throwing a Super Bowl party in the White House. Well, so and this is another. You know, you had asked about the change in Mrs. Obama. So now we're on the change over the course of the presidency and Barack Obama. So at this first Super Bowl party, you know, he doesn't, he's nice to everybody. The The, the crowd is a mix. Uh, he's got some friends there, but they've also invited some legislators from the states whose teams are playing. Uh, there are some cabinet officials. There are some wounded warriors. And he's by no means ungracious, right? I mean, the, the there are very few examples out there of Barack Obama being rude to anybody. But you know, he sort of greets everybody politely. And then when the game starts, he really sits down in his seat in the front row to watch the game. He is a serious sports fan. Um, You know, he's expressed disdain for politicians who uh, won't root for a particular team or claim neutrality. Um, He, uh, it's a point of pride for him. You know, one of his aides said that he is going to be a regular guy watching the game uh, and he's going to root for who he's going to root for, which in this case is the Steelers. And so, you know, it's, it's just a small example, but we see how he is not really a schmoozer you know, by nature. And he's committed to hanging on to some small part of his life uh, amid the presidency. You know, interestingly, uh, originally they wanted to go back to Chicago a lot. Oh, yeah, the Hyde Park problem. Right. So they, they, you know, they, they, that's again, part of wanting to hold on to their normal selves and their old lives. They say, you know. They have a very nice house in the middle of a nice neighborhood. Why didn't they go back? Because... It turns out that when you're the president and first lady, you can't really go home again, uh, especially not if you live in an urban area, right? There are, you know, if you, um, you know, if your home is, you know, a mansion on a large tract of, you know, land in a suburban area, it's easier for the Secret Service to protect it. But they live in this house that, you know, it's very beautiful, but it really is in uh, you know, a, a lively, busy Chicago neighborhood. The house is very exposed uh, to a major street, and they try to go home, and it becomes like the invasion of Normandy. 
um, the Secret Service drops these black curtains that you guys have probably seen in other contexts. They start rescheduling bus routes. Yeah. I mean, everyone's life is totally upended when the boss comes around uh, and when he's trying to come home. Yeah, and you know, and there's this mini drama over what and how the Obamas are going to eat this weekend because, you know, obviously they're going to eat. And, and, you know, it's an example of how... On the one hand, they get these amazing opportunities. On the other hand, the things that are so simple for the rest of us become so complicated. So, you know, Michelle's one, one, not going to Whole Foods, no. Well, right. So, so you know, one of one of uh, the people who planned the trip told me, you know, we literally didn't know what to do because, on the one hand, they can't just shop for groceries anymore. Uh, you know, we considered catering. Uh, as you know, the Secret Service really supervises what the president eats in particular and uh, watches uh, often how it's made and whatnot. And what they eventually ended up doing is they brought the Navy stewards um, home uh, to uh, cook and serve the Obama's food in their own home. So, you know, that's obviously pretty nice to have Navy stewards work for you, but it means that you're no longer having like a kind of quiet private weekend uh, at home. And so they get back to the White House and Michelle Obama says to the aides that are waiting for her, we live in the White House now. And, you know, it's almost like this escape route that they thought they'd have uh, was sealed off. And here, by the way, is where the contrast with the Bushes, I think, is so dramatic because the book, you know, I talked to a couple of the Bush people for this book because their their perspective was so Interesting, And, you know, George and Laura Bush knew the deal, right? I mean... Oh, they knew it all too well. I mean, he had lived it uh, with his father's presidency. Exactly. And he had seen it uh, even from a little bit farther away during his father's vice presidency. Exactly. But so to me, the, the, the telling fact is that the Bushes build the ranch in Crawford. When do they build it? They build it during the campaign. Exactly. Exactly. Because what... prep. Well, they, they, they know the deal. They, you know, I don't want to read their minds, but what that clearly says to me is that they're saying, if we win, we're going to need a place to escape. You know what I thought about when I was going through your book is this realization, and I think it's it's a little bit true for staffers, especially when you're close to the first family or forced to support the president in some of these uh, very intimate family-oriented spaces, whether it's at uh, the White House or it's up at Camp David or, or, you know, some other location, even a holiday spot where you're supporting the boss, um, is how you feel at the end of your service or even at the end of an administration, you look back and you think, God, if I knew then what mm-hmm. I know now, well, this could have been so much easier. Right. Um, and yet the cultural differences are also very big. And uh, I think people are going to have to make up their own minds and, and, and America is changing. But for a lot of affluent white Americans, growing up with a house staff or, or understanding what it is to have a live-in maid or, or even to have had a cook is something that is fairly commonplace in certain elements of, of American life. But not for this family. Not at all, and certainly not for the vast majority of American families. It's it's something completely new, and yet you're not just jumping into it. You're jumping into the deepest of the deep end, where it's not just being provided. You're, there's not just a staff there, but there's this, you didn't use the word fiduciary, but every last element has got to be just right, and it's all calculated, and there's a protocol and a process. 
And um, that's and you know since since you guys are optics experts, I really think we should talk about money because yeah, oh, there's, you know, we, the, we we started talking about the money element of this. Was wanted to bring it up with you too. Yeah, you know the because it's almost like you have this explosive combination, right? Because you have on the one hand the very sort of privileged looking life of really any president and first lady. That's ingredient one. Ingredient two is that you've got this African-American family of strivers who come from a modest background. And part of their claim to the country in 2008 is that they're, you know, the people who pump their own gas, right? I mean, they're not rich like the McCains. uh, They're not rich like John Edwards. They're not part of the political class like the Clintons. They're more modest, everyday people. And then the third element you have is... um, you have what's going on in the economy. You know, you have an economy where that is just producing so much pain and suffering and so much resentment and distress on the part of Americans. And so it's like the Obamas get to the White House um, and their greatest success come comes at the moment when the country is suffering so much. And that, you know, as you read in the book, that produces a very difficult debate between the East and the West Wing. And the reason I think... The reason I really like telling this story is that I honestly don't know who's right. You know, not only am I being an objective reporter, but really when I think to myself, you know, who has the upper hand here? I'm not sure because Michelle Obama comes in and she wants um, everything to look really beautiful in part because she's the first African-American first lady. Uh, You know, she knows exactly what the negative stereotypes are of black women and she wants everything to be beautiful and sophisticated and chic. On the other hand, you have Robert Gibbs and Gibbs is very concerned given the public anger about the economy about anything that looks too chic, too fancy, too Hollywood. And, you know, what he said to me in our interview was, uh, you know, once you have a John Edwards $400 haircut moment, you can never take that back. You can never put it back in the box. And so he talked about, um, he really admitted that he was very protective. And what that meant is that he really advised against the Obamas doing a lot of things there, you know, when it came to decoration or entertaining or either whether Mrs. Obama brought makeup artists on trips, he tended to be very conservative. Um, And so it produced some real friction between the East Wing and the West Wing, this kind of constant back and forth about Michelle Obama's personal choices that used to be private and used to belong uh, to her herself and now are sort of up for public discussion. And a symbol of that, I mean, there's so many symbols that you draw out in the book and I, you know, we could go on for so long, but you know, when when you paint that picture of how long Senator Obama, President Obama, had to spend away from the home and family in order to get elected, and he makes some of these simple promises, like, "Honey, when we get when we when I'm working below the store, when I'm working below the." when I'm working above the, when I'm living above the shop, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're going to do simple things like I'm going to take you to New York and we're going to go to Broadway for a dinner and show. Pretty simple proposition, right? And yet, as you were talking about what happened with the Filipino uh, stewards and the need for them to prepare the food, because God forbid any bit of poison gets into presidential food, uh, you can't just hop on the shuttle or on Amtrak to go up to Broadway, can you? No. So they go, they, they do this sort of, they do this date night um, in 
uh, in, in, I think it's May or June of 2009. And it goes to exactly what I was talking about, you know, about the contrast between on the one hand, things looking beautiful and chic and even romantic. And then on the other hand, the anxiety about spending. Uh, the president wants to take his wife to a Broadway show. So they schedule this trip. They're going to fly up to New York, do dinner uh, and a show, and then come back. So, Can let me just interject for a second. Yeah. Because our audience is pretty savvy. Yeah. And, you know, it's just worth uh, pointing out that when you're going to take, when you're going to move the President of the United States on a purely personal bit of business, guess who's picking up the bill? Well, exactly. And and so another interesting tension is the size of the plane that they use because there's a bigger Air Force One and there's a smaller Air Force One. The smaller Air Force One is obviously cheaper, so that's good. But the Secret Service likes the bigger Air Force One because it's, you know... Safer and more capable. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So they go up to New York and, you know, also I think it's worth pointing out that you know, technology is different than even when the Bushes were in office and certainly when the Clintons were. I mean, you know, in the Clinton administration, people people used to get pool reports on paper, like, hello. So, I have them all. It, there you go. So, um, so they... So they fly up to New York, but of course Republicans know what they're doing in real time. And so this Republican press release goes out, you know, while they're still like happily, innocently on their excursion. And, you know, the exact language in the book, but the press release is like, I hope the Obamas are having fun on the, you know, American taxpayers' dime while, you know, da da da, job losses this month, da 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 da. Now, it's a somewhat unfair attack because the president, as you say, can't take Amtrak. And the Bushes also used presidential planes to go back and forth to Crawford um, all the time. But the Obamas were very, um, they were very struck by the reaction. I actually talked to the president about it. He seemed more bothered by it than the first lady. But, you know, he said just the idea that I can't take my wife to a Broadway show um, anymore just... uh, you know, it perplexes me. And, and you know, and by the way, you know, Robert Gibbs defends it in the briefing and he doesn't defend it that vigorously. Um, and so, you know, we talked about how after the trip to Chicago, it was like one escape route was shut off for them. This is like, boom, right? Another escape route is gone because Republicans have successfully managed to link the argument about government spending to the argument about the Obama's, you know, sort of personal discretionary uh, use of government funds while they're in the White House. So now all of their personal choices are political. As we take a look at the uh, narrative arc of presidential history, uh, you've got uh, the contemporaneous uh, real-time reporting, and then you have what Jody Kanner has brought forward. She took a year off from a very vibrant journalistic career to do a deep dive, to, to pump her sources and to work even with the administration to bring this very fulsome picture of the first family as they assimilate to life in the White House. And it, it puts uh, all these other things like resources uh, against a timeline that we know so well, some of those iconic images. And I think from a polyoptics perspective, especially as we go into this election year, uh, your book is a must read. And it's one that people will look back against and try and figure out as even more information becomes available and other people start to have uh, an opportunity to talk, uh, especially if this were to be a one-term presidency, uh, about these things. 
no, there is no right or wrong. I mean, it's just everyone has a different perception of it, right? The East Wing, West Wing elements of it. Uh, the, well, I don't know that as a journalist you want to be a relativist. Like, you, I don't know that you want to say that nobody's right and nobody's wrong. But I think in this case we just want to show how many fascinating debates mm. played out within this presidency where a lot of the different sides had, you know, really strong arguments. Josh, we, we talk about it all the time, but it, it it never ceases to amaze me, both for a staff and for the president and the first family. There's always that re- recreating the wheel, uh, learning from scratch. It's impossible to have the, the kind of rare insight that a George W. Bush had into what it is to, to live the life of a president unless you've literally stood there and been a part of a family the way he was. Uh, really fascinating and we thank you so much for joining us on Polyoptics, Jody Kenner. My pleasure. I loved being here. All right, so POTUS Polyoptics out of the way. Let's take a turn and think about what comes next. As I've said, uh, New Hampshire and Iowa are in the rearview mirror, Josh, and we are taking a look at what comes up next, the first in the South primary uh, in South Carolina. Our guest today is a native son of South Carolina, someone who is no stranger to politics. Uh, His name is Tucker Eskew, and if you come from South Carolina, you probably know that name because Tucker was the spokesman and chief communications officer for the South Carolina governor, Carol Campbell, for his entire career as the governor of the Palmetto State. But Tucker has been an important part of national level presidential politics as a Republican strategist and campaign operative. Today, he's joining us from Accra, Ghana. He's over there on an important mission with the One Campaign, which we will get to. But are you craving the politics of South Carolina, Tucker? Well, I'm 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 craving uh, my own bed and a taste of home, but having a great trip. And uh, I have, I must admit, been checking the uh, iPhone for uh, updates and uh, checked in with a few friends. So, uh, you know, old habits die die hard, Adam. I'm right on top of it, uh, at least as you can from afar. And I think I'll dive in a little bit deeper when I get home. But I must say, uh, so your listeners know, I'm unaligned in the campaign and uh, watching it with a lot of interest. Tucker, last week, Adam and I reviewed the results from New Hampshire, and it was sort of an old home week for me because I come from Boston, and I started in politics with uh, first Paul Simon and then Michael Dukakis up in New Hampshire. And, you know, in 1988, uh, South Carolina played such a big role in the ultimate outcome of the campaign because of one man, Lee Atwater. And here we are all descending on South Carolina. Can you give our listeners a sense just to... a deep dive into Columbia for a few minutes and tell us how, how are the politics of that state? What's the background and, and where is it now? Sure. Well, thank you, Josh. Uh, look, it's, uh, it is a storied history. Uh, Lee Atwater and Carol Campbell devised the South Carolina Republican primary. Before 1980, it didn't exist. And in 1980, both of them, working for Ronald Wilson Reagan, uh, set up South Carolina as uh, a firewall, a, a place where should events turn south, <laughs> metaphorically, up in New Hampshire for President Reagan, then he would have uh, you know, a firewall and a place to uh, count 
in his uh, in his pocket going into that campaign um, for that state. Now, uh, over the years, eight years later, of course, when we had again a contested primary, it really did serve as a firewall. It was a firewall for George H. W. Bush, who had had uh, rocky moments in uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire, and uh, we were faced with an onslaught. I was working informally for that campaign uh, as uh, part of the team, the Campbell team. Carol Campbell had endorsed George H.W. Bush and uh, deployed his political network uh, to, to go to work against uh, very strong candidates, Senator uh, Bob Dole and uh, an upstart, Reverend Pat Robertson. And uh, we proved uh, that uh, South Carolina could uh, really make a difference. And as you know, just to set the table fully, South Carolina has chosen the ultimate Republican nominee in every uh, contested presidential primary since 1980. We make presidents. And uh, so I think we certainly make nominees. Uh, in the case of 1988, we made a, the, the beginnings of the president, certainly, uh, with, with that campaign. And, uh, you know, it's a state that is... Uh, uh, has become, uh, it's been transformed through a lot of uh, economic growth. Uh, it's not as much as we'd like as a native Southerner now living in Alexandria, Virginia. I look uh, home and see a state with a 9.9% unemployment rate uh, with a really virtual one-party control, uh, thanks in large measure to the work of Governor Carol Campbell and uh, his uh, political network and the transformation of the new South, uh, South Carolina is dominated by uh, the Republican Party. So most of the political fights are internal fights. They're fights within the party. And as we all know, Democrat or Republican, this is true in life in many ways, our toughest fights are those who are most like us. Uh, so it's true that we have uh, very toughly contested primaries, and there are certain instances of that where it's been really tough and out of bounds. And then there's a lot, as Adam uh, said, a lot of myth uh, behind this. Tucker, and, um, um, yeah. one of the things that I want to have uh, you help people try and get their head around is – there, as you talk about the myths and the realities of South Carolina, uh, it is sort of the narrative this time around, and, and this has been perpetuated, is that this is bare-knuckle politics. It could be the place where the dark arts are practiced, but from a polyoptics perspective, uh, both inside the state and, you know, as a backdrop uh, for the rest of the nation, how critically important is the fight in South Carolina that we're looking forward to in the next week or so for this Republican field? Well, it's critical, Adam, and it's going to be an optical fight. It's going to be a message fight. It's going to be a, a matter of momentum versus media and money, and uh, as it ever was, right? But but as we sometimes say in South Carolina, even more so. <laughs> it, 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 it'll be tough. But, you know, sometimes the uh, produced visual can be fairly raw, and I will never forget the moment uh, as we prepared to uh, – to have George W. Bush called on stage at the final debate in the 2000 primary with Alan Keyes taking his place in the center of that ring, John McCain to one side and George W. Bush the other, as a volunteer who had been driving 
perhaps a little above the posted speed limit, all the way from Rock Hill, South Carolina, to madly get to us before that debate started and folding up the piece of paper and myself sticking it in the governor's hands as he prepared to walk on stage just moments beforehand did it arrive because we wanted a copy that had not been faxed and it was in fact not a copy, but was the actual flyer that had been placed under uh, someone's windshield wiper at a political event attacking George W. Bush. Now, to give people a little bit of uh, yeah. a little bit of background here, and, and Josh is a student of these things as well. We're really uh, talking about uh, something that was storied in that 2000 campaign where there was an emailed version of this flyer but it can be thought of uh, for at sort of broad brush levels uh, perhaps some dirty tricks and it was wondered whether or not this was something that was not even true but fully a product of uh, something invented just for media consumption correct yeah right so so thank you for reminding me to provide the context in the sense that if the debate Going into this debate, uh, John McCain had said, we're pulling all negative ads. I will not do anything that attacks my opponents. Okay, so that is the context in which George Bush pulled out a flyer that had been handed out that that attacked George W. Bush for some uh, of his positions. And the governor put it on the table uh, after being challenged to do so by John McCain. Uh, And it was a dramatic moment, and it really helped reinforce this idea that we were on our game and had momentum going into that election day. But uh, as you've sort of implied, at the earliest moments of that really heated session of the primary, there had been uh, all sorts of charges against the Bush campaign. Tucker, one of the things I want to hear from you about is how a good campaign, especially in South Carolina, this first in the South uh, primary, which starts to test uh, messages and narratives in a different way. Uh, you know, how important is it to be nimble? And what do you see with, uh, like, for example, uh, Governor Perry continuing on this line of vulture capitalism? This is an infight in the Republican Party, but uh, it's also about preparing for the onslaught that will come for the eventual nominee. How important is the South Carolina factor in helping to hone these messages or saying to people, this isn't just going to fly. This is a critical phase, and I used the word message earlier to, t- to emphasize that the campaign that masters message will win in South Carolina. You need momentum and you need strong media, but at the core of all of that is message. And you're right, uh, the, the whole question about Mitt Romney's uh, capitalist background is fundamental to this election, It is uh, to this primary, and it is in fact an opportunity for Governor Romney to put it to bed or to see it metastasize. Uh, I think if you had asked me six months ago whether Republicans would be attacking Mitt Romney on uh, this issue, I would have scoffed. I would have laughed at the idea. Uh, We all knew, perhaps, that the Obama campaign would be preparing to do just this. So uh, as an unaligned person, I would say, look, that's just was kind of unpredictable. Of course, this is part of what we like about politics. But let me say this about South Carolina. It is a state with this blend of uh, economic establishment I mean, it's got a a fairly vibrant business community that uh, Main Street in South Carolina pulls some sway politically. Uh, At the same time, there's a populist streak. 
I think those two forces uh, are, are, will sort of be tested here uh, to see what, what uh, where privacy uh, comes out. And I, I, uh, I think it's fascinating. And to your question, I think you're exactly right. This is a de- determinative, uh, defining kind of moment, and it's a chance for Romney to put it to bed or to uh, see it get worse. It's amazing to me uh, when we started to think about this show here on Polyoptics uh, as we look forward to South Carolina. Who's the right guy to talk to? Who's the guy that's been down there? I don't want another journalist. I wanted to find somebody who has, you know, been in the trenches, who's been uh, part of public service in the state, knows the Republican politics, and of course is a strategist. So I immediately said to Josh, I got to get Tucker Eskew. And when I found out, Tucker, uh, where you were, uh, it it, it really bears some explaining because this is the first time on Polyoptics that we've had a guest come to us from the continent of Africa. You are there as part of a listening and learning mission that the One Campaign uh, has put together. You're there with a bipartisan uh, group of influentials, people like you who have served uh, in administrations, who are a part of our political process, who are the quote-unquote influentials in Washington who can be translators. And so when I reached out to you and, and I heard that you were there, it made perfect sense, Josh, uh, to, to bridge the gap and think a little bit about foreign policy that really binds America uh, together even when the political fight is over. That's right. I mean, Africa has received so little focus uh, in the daily political discourse. We've been talking about the South Carolina primary. We've been deadly focused on Iowa and New Hampshire for the last eight months. And yet it seems unfortunate in a way that it takes uh, both President Clinton and President Bush made important visits to Africa during their presidencies. But it takes until their ex-presidency, until after they leave office, to realize how much is going on in Africa, how much needs to be done, and how much potential is there. Right, Tucker? There's no question about it. I've got to tell you, uh, I had this moment uh, when we walked into a new school in a small village uh, that was being uh, dedicated. And to feel uh, the joy as hundreds of children prepared to make use of a dramatically improved school building, set of buildings and facilities, and to, to just feel a personal connection to that, to feel gratitude to President Bush for what he did, to my friends who helped devise the policies of PEPFAR, the President's uh, AIDS Initiative, the Millennium Challenge Account, which is so uh, little known to your point, Adam, uh, but which ties U.S. Uh, uh, aid to a set of accountability standards like making sure that women have uh, rights and development opportunities and the president's malaria initiative. I, I was so moved. Uh, it, it was the most, for me, dramatic moment of the whole week. And uh, there are a lot of them. And I know my uh, Democratic uh, cohorts here have had similar moments that connect back to the work of Democrats. So uh, often of which are bipartisan efforts, ultimately. They have to be led by someone and President Obama has started a new initiative uh, for Africa, which is uh, uh, widely appreciated here. So I, I think it's a it's, it's a good moment, even in this partisan time, to remember some of these things that do bind us together as Americans. In a weird way, Tucker, you know, you were talking about earlier the South Carolina being the firewall in the South and it being sort of a different economic set of circumstances than 
certainly Iowa and New Hampshire. If you think about United States GDP growth over the last few years, pretty flat, moving up incrementally. But the real growth on the planet is happening right where you are today. What are you seeing on your trip? And how do you think it, I mean, it's so far from sort of economic success stories in in North America, but are you seeing the a burgeoning economy in Africa now that you're on your trip? There are elements of that, Josh. I want to tell you that I've learned being here in Ghana, my first trip to Africa, that there is enormous potential. Uh, let's take a really long view for a moment. Uh, a, a friend working with the One Campaign quoted uh, their founder, uh, Bono, a few minutes ago saying, look, if we don't think about how Africa is going to be and grow, in 50 years, we're really going to regret that nations like China came in and uh, helped them show, show the way uh, toward economic prosperity. I don't want to minimize for a minute the awful poverty and the terrific problems here. We've seen them uh, up close, and they will move you and touch your heart. But we're also seeing hope. And Ghana is probably uh, the leading example, certainly one of the leading examples in Africa, where there is promise of a burgeoning potential middle class. And uh, that's a tremendous development. And I cannot emphasize enough that it is tied directly to the fact that they've got democracy. And they've got a stable turnover of government, a peaceful transition in four elections now in a row uh, at the presidential level. So it's a, a robust two-party system. Uh, it's a, a country that's discovering new resources, uh, one of them oil, and it's a country with some uh, some wonderful, welcoming people. It's been an amazing experience. I think one of the, your traveling mates uh, with you, Karen Finney, uh, who worked in the Clinton White House with me, was probably on President Clinton's famous first trip to Ghana in the mid-90s. And I, I can remember we had about a million people uh, uh, welcoming President Clinton. I think President Bush had a similar uh, welcome. And it, 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 it has been such a gateway country for Africa for the United States. What's your perception of how uh, countries like Ghana are perceiving uh, the United States these days? And given the experience you have in helping to sort of promote the administration's message in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're doing a very different kind of message today, aren't you? I am indeed, and proud to do it. I'll tell you that uh, uh, Karen has told us those stories of that experience, and uh, Adam and I have talked about President Bush's remarkable experiences here, and I'll just tell you that America is, uh, I find it just warmly welcomed and, and loved. And our, our efforts here, which represent less than 1% of the federal budget uh, for foreign aid overall, globally, uh, are warmly appreciated and remembered. And they're also being oriented, I think, thanks so much to President Bush, toward accountability and making sure that we're not just giving things away, but teaching. And that, that uh, the, there's enormous uh, growth from that. So I, I think it's an amazing place. America is loved here. And uh, it's certainly bipartisan. And President Obama is uh, revered. Uh, I'll tell you that today we drove on a highway that some call the George W. Bush Highway, and uh, many people have uh, reminisced about President Clinton's visit to us. We don't have an unlimited amount of time with Tucker from Accra, Ghana, uh, and I appreciate the context, both of your mission there with the One Campaign and your insights into the politics in South Carolina. But let's go top line as we finish up here with Tucker Eskew uh, on the polyoptics of South Carolina. My sense is over the next week, it's going to get uglier, and it's going to get bare-knuckled, and it's going to be... Uh, uh, 
basically a story of people who are playing for keeps. Do you have a prediction for the outcome in South Carolina? Too early to say. I, I wouldn't. I mean, I think if I had to guess today, if you forced me to put money down, I, you know, Governor Romney's in a very good position for him. But uh, <clears throat> there are at least three campaigns, really four, uh, in-state gunning for him. And uh, a lot can happen in a short amount of time. We've seen that uh, in the Palmetto State. Jedi Knight of Republican campaign politics, a strategist extraordinaire and partner with Vianovo, uh, a bipartisan uh, public affairs firm here in Washington, D.C. And we really appreciate you taking the time at this late hour to join us from Accra, Ghana. Uh, we will uh, check back in and see what uh, your estimation of South Carolina looks like. Thanks a lot, uh, Tucker. Thanks, Adam. May the force be with you and, and Josh. Well, Josh King, you can no longer claim to be the regular polyoptics uh, contributor uh, who is coming to us from across an ocean. Here we had uh, a guest from Africa today. I'm pretty proud about that. Well, that's right. I'm going to have to go to Antarctica next week, I think, to rival uh, Tucker Eskew's unique Skype way of getting in touch with polyoptics this week. Well, that'll do it for polyoptics this week. You know there's only one place on the radio anywhere in the planet to find this kind of discussion. It's only on POTUS.